The reading is um, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in a synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Welcome to Church at Home. My name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church here in Cape Town, South Africa. If you're with us for the first time, we're absolutely delighted that you've joined us and I do hope by the grace of God that our talk this morning will be a blessing and an encouragement to you, even as you continue in fellowship with a local church. Uh, we're currently in a series in the Gospel of Mark and if our study today leaves you with questions or you'd like someone to pray with you, uh, can I encourage you to visit our website www.sbbc.org.za and on the home page you'll find a contact tab where you can leave your details and one of us on the team will be in touch with you during the week. But now as we begin will you bow with me and let's ask for God's help as we study his word together. Father we thank you for your many kindnesses to us and we pray that out of your abundance you would help us to see into your word this morning to see things that are precious and timely and helpful and strengthening and convicting and we ask that you would not only help us to see these things but also to act upon them and we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. 
Richard Greenham was the pastor of Dry Date Drayton between 1570 and 1590. Uh, he was a faithful, gifted gospel man and he worked astonishingly hard. He got up at 4am every morning and on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Friday he preached a sermon to his congregation at dawn before they went out to work in the fields. He preached twice on Sundays and in addition he taught the children on Sunday evening and again on Thursday morning. His biographer says that he preached with such passion and sincerity that when he finished his shirt would be so drenched with sweat that it looked as if it had been soaked with water. He was also a highly effective pastoral counsellor. In fact he was so good at it that his friends wanted him to write a book about it. But he never did because in his own words he wanted to devote himself to preaching Christ crucified first to himself and then to his congregation. But in spite of his tremendous gifting, in spite of his commitment, uh, and in spite of his gospel focus, his ministry was unsuccessful. Uh, people outside his parish were greatly blessed by him. But when he handed over his, to his successor after 20 years, he said, after these 20 years, I cannot see that I've achieved anything here except perhaps in just one family. Now that's the kind of thing that we're looking at in our passage this morning. Uh, so far in Mark's Gospel, we've been looking at unstoppable progress. Uh, Jesus has been saying that my word is like a seed and that it will go out and it will produce a harvest. The seed will become a great tree. And then we've seen him speaking to a storm and to a demonised man and to a sick lady and to a dead girl and nothing seems to stop his progress it's irresistible but now in chapter 6 there is resistance there is opposition <clears throat> and it's a very sad opposition and the fact of the matter is that the shadow of the cross is already hanging over Jesus and of course that kind of opposition to Jesus still continues today and will continue until the day that he returns. But this morning I want us to look at these verses in Mark chapter 6 under two headings. The first is the reality of unbelief in verses 1 to 6. And this is where Jesus goes to his hometown and his family do not appreciate him. And then the second section in verses 17, 7 to 13 uh, I've called the necessity of gospel mission. And uh, that's where Jesus sends his disciples out in pairs to various villages. <clears throat> so first, let's think about the reality of unbelief. The reality of unbelief, verses 1 to 6. And we read here that Jesus went to his hometown. Where is his hometown? Well, we assume it's Nazareth, don't we? Uh, that's where he spent the first 30 years of his life. Was Nazareth a great place? Well, the Old Testament doesn't mention Nazareth, not even once. And apart from the other references in the New Testament, all other literature in the first century never ever mentions Nazareth. The experts say it was extremely small, perhaps only about 500 people lived there. So it's a tiny place. Most people have never been there. 
They never visited uh, the place and they never even thought about it. But Jesus puts it on the map. It's his hometown. But when Jesus goes home, the people don't appreciate him. He teaches in the synagogue. The people are amazed, verse 2. But that isn't the amazement of appreciation. Uh, It's the amazement of scepticism, cynicism and criticism. So this is not Nazareth uh, listening to their favourite son who's come home and saying, wow, we never realised that he's on a plane so far above us. No, this is Nazareth listening to Jesus and saying, no, he's got to be on our level. He's actually no better than any of us. And you can see that in the language that they used. I don't know whether you noticed this. In verses 2 and 3, they say, where does this man get these things? And then they say, "Um, isn't this the carpenter? Now, that's not a term of respect. Um, I suppose it's rather like someone today saying, "Uh, isn't this the garden boy? Uh, Then even more negatively, they say, isn't this Mary's son? Now, in that culture, if they wanted to be respectful, they would have said, isn't that Joseph's son? But you see, Jesus' paternity was in doubt. Uh, The rumours were that he'd been conceived outside of marriage, and that's really the flavour of that statement. And then they say, uh, isn't he just one of Mary's children? And they mention the other four brothers and at least two sisters. And the inference is that Jesus is no different to any of them. And then the final word in verse 3 is that they took offence at him. Now a literal reading of that phrase is that they were scandalised. So they can't argue with the fact that he's saying remarkable things and that he's doing remarkable things. They can't deny that. Uh, His teaching is amazing. Uh, His wisdom is unanswerable. His deeds are astonishing. But you see, being impressed is not the same thing as being converted. I do hope you know that. Uh, It is possible to join us on Sunday mornings and perhaps be impressed by the service, uh, by the songs, even by the sermon. And you could be slightly impressed. You might be greatly impressed. But that is not the same as being converted. People used to go and listen to George Whitfield preach because they loved his oratory. Uh, same way people used to go and listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones because they loved the way that he spoke and created what people today would describe as a bit of a vibe. But those people, many of them, weren't converted. They didn't believe. Uh, and as we know today, millions of people, though they can't actually question the credentials of Jesus, They won't give him any respect. They won't give him any devotion. And the problem is not lack of evidence. Let's let's make that point clear. That wasn't the problem in Jesus' day and it's not the problem today. We need to know this. There is no lack of evidence. You know, you will hear some people say, ah, there is no evidence. But the truth is that for the sincere seeker, there's no lack of evidence. The problem is resistance in spite of the evidence. And I don't need to persuade you that all our hearts are like this because the human heart is a very resistant thing. 
Uh, we know that we're all perfectly capable of knowing the right way to speak, of knowing the right way to live, but then choosing the wrong way because it's more convenient, it appeals to us, it suits us. Now, how else do we explain the world that we live in, uh, which would apparently really like to know if there is life beyond this planet? But when there's an excellent case for our Maker having come to visit us in the Incarnation, uh, we would prefer to wallpaper over that message with a different message, which quite honestly is rather silly. Or, uh, given that our world would love to know if there's life beyond the grave, when the Son of God rises from the grave, our world wallpapers over that message with an Easter bunny and a chocolate egg. It's so childish. Uh, that way of thinking really belongs in preschool. But you see, that's the world we live in. And it's because the human heart is deeply resistant to the things of God. Now I hope that in a way you find it slightly encouraging that Jesus himself had to face this. Uh, I certainly do. Uh, many of our most painful hurts involve the people who are closest to us. Uh, the closer the relationship, the greater the potential for tremendous joy, but also the potential for great hurt. And Jesus' own people reject him. Now think about that. He'd lived a perfect life amongst them for 30 years, but when he comes to visit, they reject him. Now, people he hoped might have uh, supported him, might have understood him, are actually against him. And therefore, you see, when you and I pray for those members of our family and our friends whose opposition to Jesus grieves us and whose hostility towards us sometimes grieves us, we're actually talking to somebody who knows just what that feels like. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that he's sympathetic. He's experienced so many of the things that we've experienced. And he certainly experienced this. And yet, of course, he's not quite like us because he's done nothing to deserve that kind of opposition. He deserves great appreciation. He deserves great devotion. But he doesn't get it. And therefore, he is able to understand when we bring to him uh, the sadness and the pain of someone that we really care about who's hostile to us and hostile to our message. And of course, the opposition to Jesus intensified, didn't it, throughout his life until there came a time when the crowds which had received so much from him began to turn against him. And the authorities attacked him the disciples deserted him and then at the crucifixion even the father stepped back from him and left him completely alone so that he might experience total rejection with no support in order that he might offer to us a total acceptance and fellowship with God the Father. Now you might think that the world would learn to be ashamed of its rejection of Jesus after all, the world is ashamed of gender-based violence, and rightly so. Uh, the world is ashamed of systemic racism, and rightly so. But there's no public apology for what the world has done to its maker. Quite the reverse. Because the hostility towards Christ and his people only seems to get worse. 
that today people are still scandalised by the birth of Jesus, aren't they? They'd like us to avoid the subject. They say, would the church please keep quiet about Christmas and the Incarnation because we find it irritating? And people are still scandalised by the life of Jesus, aren't they? And they continue to mock him. And people are scandalised by the message of Jesus. So the message of Jesus gets watered down and diluted into uh, love people, don't offend anybody, and... uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so bland, it's practically meaningless. And people are scandalised also by the resurrection of Jesus, so they avoid talking about it. Friends, we are living in a very, very strange world. But we're not critical of the world because we know what our own hearts are like. And therefore we need to factor in what I'm saying in this first point this morning, which is the reality of unbelief. So perhaps a way to think about this is a bit like a train track with these two things running side by side. On the one side, uh, there is the power and the grace of Jesus to change anybody. And then on the other side, there's unbelief. And both these realities are running side by side through the world. And of course, it's very costly to Jesus when people turn him down. But of course it's very costly indeed to the people who do turn him down. Very costly. So look at verses 4 to 6. Jesus says, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honour. Because of course people tend to patronise, and they become so familiar that they become contemptuous. So it's a great grief to Jesus that the people of his hometown would treat him like this. But friends, it is an incalculable loss to those who actually do it. And so we read in verse 5, Jesus could not do any miracles there. Now friends, that is a stunning sentence. He could not do any miracles there. Now when you think about that, (coughs) it can't mean that Jesus was unable to do any more miracles. Uh, It can't mean that his hands were tied or that he had no more power or he had no authority. I mean, in view of everything we've seen so far in Mark's Gospel, it can't mean any of those things. What it does mean, I think, is that he was unable to do things that are really beneficial he was unable to do things that are truly helpful because the people are unreceptive. I suppose it would be a bit like bringing food to people who are so disinterested in food that they're just going to throw it and fight with it. And Jesus, in the same way, is unable to bring miracles to his hometown profitably. So, except in a couple of cases, he doesn't. And uh, in verse 6, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now there are only two places in the New Testament where Jesus is amazed. Uh, One is in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus encounters the faith of a Roman soldier. So this complete outsider comes and says to Jesus you just have to speak and my servant will be well and that causes Jesus to be amazed. And then here in his hometown despite the teaching, despite the miracles, despite the wisdom 
and despite the life that he's lived before their eyes the people don't believe and Jesus is amazed so friends what are we to make of this well we need to hold in our hands our two separate hands first of all that Jesus has power to change anybody he can change anyone at any time and then in the other hand we have to, we have to remember that unbelief is a persistent reality and we also need to hold in our two hands that Jesus knows everything that's in our hearts he knows exactly what we're like but at the same time he's absolutely amazed by unbelief in the face of all the evidence that he's provided stubborn unbelief amazes Jesus so that's the first point this morning the reality of unbelief and the second is the necessity of gospel mission the necessity of gospel mission now you might think given this uh, opposition in his hometown that Jesus might be tempted to turn around and say to the disciples look this is hopeless uh, this is a lost cause what we actually find is the opposite because in verses 7 to 13 what Jesus says is let's get mission moving and the reason that he says this is because the gospel message of Jesus is rather like a river running down a hill when a river flows downhill and it meets a rock or a tree it simply moves around it and keeps on going or it's a bit like a vine climbing up a fence if it meets a beam or a post it simply grows around it <coughs> And you and I need to know that the God we belong to, the God that we love, the God who loves us, causes his gospel to keep moving because he knows exactly who he's after. Uh, Spurgeon said that the gospel is like a magnet uh, moving across a rubbish dump, uh, bringing up all of the iron filings and you and I have this tremendous privilege of telling the news where we can and discovering that God is not only loving but he's also sovereign the atheist Friedrich Nietzsche uh, has had a persistent and very negative influence over the way that many people think today in 1883 he wrote a rather strange book called Thus Spake Zarathustra and in his book Nietzsche introduced the idea that God is dead that was not original to Richard Dawkins Frederick Nietzsche thought of it first but when Nietzsche sent the book off to the printer he had to wait so long for it to be printed that he got really angry in fact in the end he got really rather depressed so he wrote to the printer saying where on earth is my book you've had it for ages and uh, the printer wrote back saying I'm terribly sorry about your book but I've had a previous order for half a million hymn books and I'm still busy with that and uh, interestingly the, the irony of that was not lost on Nietzsche I mean there he was seeking to oppose God and the gospel and yet being stopped dead in his tracks by 500,000 hymn books which can I say were infinitely more useful to humankind than Nietzsche's obscure little tract so here Jesus is unstoppable there's been opposition at home yes there has 
But here in verse 7, he keeps teaching. He goes round the villages. Do you remember that's what he said he would do back in chapter 1? And then he calls the twelve disciples and he commissions them to go out in pairs. And I want you to notice the various factors in their mission. First, in verse 7, they have authority. They're not going in their own authority. They go with his authority. And I'm sure you know when you get to the end of each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, there is a commissioning of some kind at the end of each Gospel. A commissioning with authority. So, in the spiritual battle, these apostles are not going out with uncertainty. They're not thinking, I wonder how this is going to go. Is this battle going to be won or lost? No. They're going with the authority of the one who runs the world. And when you and I go out as representatives of the Lord Jesus this week, believe it or not, we go with the authority of the one who runs the world. And if there's going to be any good effects on the people we mix with or talk to, it's going to be because of him, not because of us. Then the second thing in verses 8 and 9 is that they go dependently. They're completely dependent on Jesus. Uh, They've got nothing but the clothes they're wearing, although they are allowed a staff and a pair of sandals. And uh, I was trying to think this week what it would be like to head off with another person into the villages, knowing that Jesus is already starting to experience opposition and hostility. I mean, just think of it. Uh, You've got nothing, you've got no phone, you've got no bank cards, you've got no cash, uh, you've only got a stick. And uh, as they went, these disciples were going to be learning complete dependence. This tremendous recognition that they're in his hands and that he's the one who's going to provide for them. And you know, the church today needs this same recognition. We need to know that we are completely dependent on Jesus. As soon as we become independent and secure and confident in ourselves, we're in trouble. And uh, that reminded me this week of the true story, I think, of two men standing in the Vatican, uh, looking at the fabulous wealth all around them, And one of the men said to the other, well, we no longer need to say, silver and gold have we none. And uh, the other man said, yes, but no longer do we seem to be able to say, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. In other words, yes, we have got the affluence, but we just don't seem to have the influence anymore. And friends, I think there is a frightening connection, a frightening link, between self-sufficiency and ineffectiveness, uh, between self-indulgence, if you like, and ineffectiveness. On the other hand, if we do believe we're totally dependent on Jesus, we'll be in prayer, we will attend the monthly church prayer meeting, and we will be on our knees before God on a regular basis. And then the third thing in verses 10 and 11 is that Jesus warns the disciples that there's going to be kind of a polarising reaction to the message. He says some people are going to be very receptive, they'll welcome you into their home, they'll begin to provide for you, and when that happens, stay right where you are. 
because that's where you're being looked after. Uh, don't go around looking for somewhere better. But Jesus also says the other possibility is that there'll be those who reject you, they'll reject both you and your message, and therefore, says Jesus, they'll be rejecting me and the one who sent me. And if that happens, Jesus says, wipe the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now why does Jesus say that? Because when the Jews used to come back from Gentile lands into the Promised Land, they would sometimes symbolically wipe the dust off their feet as a way of saying, I'm leaving the contaminated world and I'm coming back into the safe world. And here you see Jesus is saying to the disciples, when the Jewish people inside the Promised Land turn their back on you, show them that they're not, they're not safe and they're not clean. So you're wiping the dust off your feet as if to say, you might think you're in a safe place. The truth is, you're in a very dangerous place. But how wonderful it is, isn't it, that God still has very receptive people. Uh, some of you will remember Innocent, who worshipped at St Barnabas while he was at college. He's now back in Malawi. And uh, since 2016, Innocent has planted two churches. He's hoping to plant a third one this year. He's trained over 200 pastors and he's distributed 2,000 Bibles in the local language. Isn't it wonderful? God does have people seeking. And we mustn't think because so many of our friends here are impossible to communicate with and impossible to get through to that no one is receptive to the gospel because the gospel river keeps on flowing. The gospel vine keeps on growing. Now of course we need great wisdom to know how to deal with the people we know who seem to be so close to the gospel and sometimes uh, we do need courage to give them a warning which is what Jesus tells his disciples to do here. Well the last effect then in verses 12 and 13 is that these disciples going out with the authority of Jesus dependent on Jesus and knowing that the response could go either way, they still call on people to repent, to turn back. And obviously many people did, and they were delivered from spiritual and physical danger. <clears throat> so I think it's a very interesting exercise to put these two paragraphs together in your head. In verses 1 to 6, there is the hometown, where the people have astonishing spiritual privileges but they're not interested. They reject Jesus and they receive virtually nothing. Then in verses 7 to 13, the villages are receptive and they receive infinite spiritual blessing. And that we need to remember this as we think of the dilemmas before us in these verses. We need to remember that we are living in a Christ-denying and Christ-rejecting world. We shouldn't be surprised by that. I know sometimes it shocks us. But we live in a Christ-denying world. It always has been a Christ-denying world. And it always will be a Christ-denying world until the day Jesus comes back. And you and I must go on being Christ-offering people. 
Now that's the first thing to take away this morning. And uh, we also need to remember that as we do our ministry and uh, exercise our witness that there's likely to be this polarising effect. Don't be surprised by that. Uh, If we keep speaking the truth in our services and home groups and if we keep speaking the truth outside as we leave and go and mix with family, friends and business colleagues we can't be surprised if there is both a greater hostility but also a greater appreciation. And if we go on preaching the truth and the standards of God and the freedoms of God we've got to expect that some people are going to stand up and say I've had enough and leave. And uh, that's a great grief to us but of course it's a massive cost to them. So we do need to recognise where we are and where we live. And the second thing we need to remember is that when we call people to repent, (coughs) which seems so costly, as people say to themselves, oh dear, I've got to give up my greed, I've got to give up my adultery, I've got to give up my pride, because it's such a costly thing to repent. What will come in its place is abundant blessing of the deepest and most lasting kind. (coughs) So this privilege we have of telling people to repent and to receive Christ, which looks to be a costly and a humbling thing, brings in its wake abundant blessing, eternal blessing, beyond anything we could ever measure or calculate. And uh, that's our privilege, that's our responsibility, and friends, that is also our joy. So let's ask God for help to do it. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we pray that in the steps of the Lord Jesus you would strengthen us to be faithful to the truth and we pray that in your great power and goodness you would speed on the truth and raise up many to believe to live, to have great blessing and to honour you in great and public and lasting ways and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.